We're returning this morning to our verse-by-verse exposition of Paul's letter to the Colossians, and I desire to bring you a message this morning entitled, Breaking the Bondage of Legalism. Breaking the Bondage of Legalism. You know, that term, legalism, is a term that is thrown out very, very commonly in the church these days. We often hear that term, legalism, or we hear the term legalist, and I think it would be well for us to define, uh, at least this morning, what I mean by the term legalism. I trust that this will be a very challenging and practical sermon this morning on the matters of legalism and breaking its bondage. This is the way I want to define legalism this morning, and I think it would be a definition that would hold true with any discussion on the matter of legalism. Legalism is this. Legalism is a man-made rule or set of rules designed with a view to be right with God or to be pleasing to God. I'll say it again. Legalism are man-made rules designed or with the purpose that someone would be right with God or that someone would be pleasing to God. Legalism could occur either in the matter of salvation, a rule that someone sets up in addition to what God has said in His Word about salvation in order to be right with God. Or, if someone is already a Christian, they might set up some man-made rules in order for them or someone else to try to be pleasing to God. And that's what I mean by legalism. And because it is man-made rules set up to try to be right with God or to try to be pleasing to God, I think it's something that we need to address in the church. I know that in my study of Scripture and in yours as well, especially if you study the life and ministry of Jesus to any degree, you would find out that much of his ministry, some of his most harshest criticism, was reserved against those who substituted their own rules for God's commands. He decried those who would attempt to replace God's own standard with their own human standard, and then attempt, of course, to pass off that human wisdom as the path to God, the only way to please God. Imagine the audacity of someone to replace God's standards with their own self-styled form of living and then try to be acceptable to God. Legalism. It's a very, very interesting reality in the church. I remember in Matthew chapter 15, verses 2 and 3, Jesus said this to the legalists of his day. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? He was really speaking in a word there about legalism. Legalism. And if you were to turn over and study Matthew chapter 23, I think you would be shocked at that chapter if you haven't read it for a while. Because Jesus, in a frontal attack, hits the issue of legalism head on. 
He spoke to the legalists of his own day and he condemned them for adding their own standards to those who were already burdened around them, but were even themselves as legalists unwilling to bear their own burdens. He says about the legalists that they were majoring on the minors, weren't even involved with the major areas at all. They would tithe mint and dill and little seeds but they would neglect the weightier matters of the law like justice and mercy and faithfulness. He tells the legalists of his own day that they strain out a gnat while swallowing a camel. He says that the legalists of his own day are fastidious about cleansing the outside of their life, but inside, he says, they're full of robbery and self-indulgence. You see, with regard to the matter of legalism, in whatever form it takes, what a person is really trying to do is to try to rewrite, to reinterpret, or even to ignore altogether God's standards themselves because he believes his way is better. He will not follow God's prescribed way because he believes his ideas are more important. If he can fulfill his own standards, then he'll be pleased with himself and God is somehow left virtually ignored in the process. Beloved, this morning, with that as an introduction, I want us to see how Paul the Apostle himself dealt with the same issue of legalism. Jesus dealt with it severely and harshly in his own day, and Paul deals with it in his own day. And he does so in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 to 23. Turn there with me. Colossians 2, verses 16 to 23. Paul's endeavoring to break the bondage of legalism. Notice what he says. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with the growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in them, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom, in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Paul has written these words to the Colossians in order to break the bondage of legalism for which they were being enticed. He wants them to understand that in order to be right with God in the matter of salvation, or even if you are already right with God in the matter of salvation, all you need to do is affirm the absolute and complete and total sufficiency of Jesus Christ. 
And in order for the believers in that day that Paul was teaching, was pastoring from a distance, all they needed to do to be continually pleasing to God in their Christian lives was to say no to all of the man-made rules imposed upon them by the false teachers. You say, what are those man-made rules? And do these same kinds of rules occur today in the Christian life? Yes. Yes, absolutely they do. And Paul is going to tell us in this passage of Scripture exactly how to avoid those traps, the traps of legalism. He's going to tell us in a very, very significant way. And he does so by giving us three ways, three ways to break the bondage of legalism. And we're going to look at the first one this morning. As I studied and meditated and looked at these things, this is so important for the church, so incredibly crucial, that I wanted us to center in on the very first one this morning and I'm going to do it in a way that I trust will be very, very practical and very, very helpful to you in your Christian life. What I want to do is, as we study each of these, I want you to notice that in verses 16 and 17, we find the very first way to break the bondage of legalism. And in that first way, Paul will give us a warning, and then he will give us an example of what the legalism was in his own day, and then he'll give us the answer to avoid that legalism. Very, very insightful. And then as we work our way into verses 18 and 19, we'll be the, seeing the second way that Paul tells us to break the bondage of legalism, again with the warning, some examples, and the answer to breaking that bondage. And then as we look at verses 20 to 23, we'll see the third way Paul says that we are to break that bondage again with a warning, with some examples, and with the answer. Let's look, first of all, at the first way to break the bondage of legalism. And here it is, principle number one. Very, very practical. Don't judge others, don't judge others, and resist the judgment of others unless you are called to do so by God's Word. That is principle number one that we'll look at this morning. Very practical, very helpful. Number one, don't judge others and resist the judgment of others unless you are called to do so by God's Word. Look at verses 16 and 17 this morning. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Paul, as a very practical man, as a shepherd of the sheep, as a pastor of the flock, he wants these Colossian believers to know, and that's why he's writing them this letter, how to break the bondage of legalism how to respond to those who come to them, these believers, and say to them, you need Christ plus this or that. You need Christ plus something in order for you to really live in an acceptable relationship to God. Paul knows that, 
He knows that they're coming. He knows what they're saying. And so he writes these Colossians and he says, don't judge others or don't allow others to judge you unless it is commanded by God in his word. That's really what he's saying in verses 16 and 17. And what he does is give give us a very, very helpful recipe in order to avoid this legalistic trap, these man-made rules. First, he gives us the warning. Notice what he says. No one is to act as your judge. No one is to act as your judge. The Colossians were being told that if they really wanted to be complete in Christ, if they really wanted to be right with God, if they really wanted to, to be acceptable to God, to live abundantly, they needed something more than what they had. They needed Christ plus something else. And Paul says, no, no, you're complete in Christ. You don't need anything else. I've just told you about this Christ. You're circumcised with Him. You are buried with Him. You've been raised from the dead. You've been made alive together. He's canceled out the dead of sins consisting against decrees. He has disarmed the rulers and authorities. I've just told you all you need is Christ and Christ alone. You are fully complete in Him. You don't need anything else. Therefore, if anyone comes along and tells you that you need something else, you must not allow them to judge you, to criticize you, to say on the basis of something more than Christ is what is necessary for either your salvation or your sanctification. You see, Paul knows that they are going to be tempted to see more in their relationship to Christ than just Christ himself. Don't judge anyone else, he says, except on the basis of Christ's own words. And don't allow anyone else to act as your judge. You say, what does it mean to judge? I mean, we hear that often in the church, don't we? We hear people saying, now, judge not, judge not, lest ye be judged. Don't judge other people. What does that mean? Or... What does it mean when some people come along and do judge, do criticize, do talk about you or someone else? How are we to respond to such things? Well, let me, let me tell you exactly what the Bible means when it talks about judging or not judging. It's a very enlightening issue of the Christian life, and yet it is a very confused one as well. I want you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 7 for a very interesting word of Jesus Christ. John chapter 7. For there in John chapter 7, you will know, once we have looked at that passage, that Jesus himself actually commands you and me as believers to judge each other. Now that may be surprising to you. You often will hear in the church, judge not, judge not, just judge not. And yet here, in the words of our Lord himself, he says, you must judge. Look at John chapter 7, verse 24. He's just talking about some of the very things that Paul is talking about here in Colossians, and even uses the same word that Paul uses here for judge. He says this, John 7, 24, Do not judge according to appearance, but notice this, judge with righteous judgment. There it is, right there. Jesus himself has commanded us to judge 
with a righteous judgment. What does he mean? Well, what he means simply is this. Judge yourself and judge everyone around you by the standard of God's Word. That's what he's saying when he says, judge with righteous judgment. In other words, judge with God's judgment. Judge with His righteous standards. If anything is to be adjudicated, if anything is to be judged, or if anything is to be evaluated, it must be evaluated based on the principles of God's Word. You say, that sounds pretty well and fine, but how do I know that I'm judging with a righteous judgment? Well, the only, only standard we have is the standard of the Word of God. And because we are all sinful creatures, and because this is our very habit of doing, every one of us, we will tend to judge everyone around us, sometimes not just based on the standard of God's Word, but sometimes also based on our own standard, won't we? Again, legalism creeps in. It says that there are man-made rules that I begin to judge other people by. That, by the way, is what is condemned in Scripture. You are to judge with a biblical, a righteous, a God-like standard, but you are to reserve judgment where God has not spoken. That is exactly what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 7. And that is the verse that I quoted a moment ago that so many people are fond of using, judge not lest ye be judged. That is true. This is what Jesus said, Matthew 7, 1. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure it will be measured to you. Now what's the difference? I mean, if you just took the two verses and put them in juxtaposition to each other, you'd hear Jesus saying in John 7, judge with righteous judgment, and then you would hear Jesus in Matthew 7, 1 say, judge not. Judge, judge not. How do we understand it? Well, in one passage, he's obviously speaking about not judging according to your own standard, to your own man-made rules and regulations. And in this passage in Matthew 7, he's saying, you cannot judge by your own standard of measure. You must not do that. That's why he says, you will be judged by your standard of measure. It will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? In other words, I am trying to live to a certain standard, and whatever standard I'm attempting to live to, I then look at others and say, you're not living to my standard. Let's be real practical. Let's put it in the realm maybe of someone being obese. Let's say that someone weighs 323 pounds. And then they walk up to someone else in the church and they say, brother, uh, sister, you know, you ought to probably consider losing a little bit of weight. Now, wouldn't that be a little hypocritical? Uh, for someone who is clearly obese, for someone who clearly has some issues with regard to their weight, going up to another brother or sister and saying, hey, I think you ought to lose some weight. That is exactly what Jesus is speaking of there. In fact, what he calls that kind of person in verse 5 of Matthew 7 is a hypocrite. He says, you hypocrite, you have a log in your own eye, and yet you're trying to take out the splinter in someone else's eye. That's legalism, folks. That is legalism. That is saying, I have a standard, 
That standard is not a standard of God's Word, but I'm going to hold other people to that standard even if I don't hold myself to such a standard. That is legalism. And that is what Paul is referring to here in Colossians 2. He's saying, don't let anyone act as your judge in these matters. And whether or not it's an issue of salvation or sanctification, you must judge with righteous judgment. We are supposed to act as a judge, but we must act as a judge with someone based upon God's standard, not our own. Absolutely not. That is out of bounds in the Christian life. We shouldn't hold the world to that kind of standard, and we must not hold ourselves to that kind of standard, where we have man-made rules, rituals, regulations, for which God has never intended, that He never wrote, that He never codified in His Word that says this is the standard. Now, that's the warning. Don't do it. Don't judge others and resist the judgment of others unless you are called to do so by God Himself, according to His Word. Now, what are the examples that Paul gives to the Colossians here? Look at verse 16. He says, Don't let anyone act as your judge in regard to... And then he gives a list. Food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Now, what's he doing here? Well, just as you and I would do, and just as I did a moment ago by giving you an example of an obese person trying to hold someone to a standard that clearly they, they are not following themselves, Paul is giving the modern-day examples that he was attacking himself. He says, there are going to be those who come to you and say, brother or sister, what you need to do is you need Christ plus food abstinence or food intake, whatever that is. We don't know exactly what that was. But we know that since Paul mentions food here, it had something to do with what somebody was to put in their mouth or not. That's what he's saying. And he even adds drink here. Food or drink. In other words, he's talking about what we could call food legalism. Food legalism. And he attacks that. He says, you can't do that. You cannot put a legalistic yoke upon people because it is Christ alone. Christ alone is our standard, and Christ never told us to do this. He never said that you must stay away from certain foods, or He never said you must eat certain foods. Christ never said that, did He? And if you are going to believe in a sufficient Christ, and if you're going to follow His words and His example, you cannot be yoked in the bondage of food legalism. Paul was not directly, I don't think, referring to the Old Testament food regulations. I think what he's referring to here is someone who would take what was commonly called in that time a Nazarite vow. How many of you have heard of the Nazarite vow that was spoken of in the Bible? Well, I don't want you to turn there, but in Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 to 3, it describes the Nazarite vow, and it sounds very similar to what Paul is referring to here. In Numbers 6, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, and to say to them, When a man or woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to, get, to dedicate himself to the Lord, he shall abstain from wine and strong drink, he shall drink no vinegar, whether made from wine or strong drink, 
neither shall he drink any grape juice, nor eat fresh or dried grapes. Now you say, that sounds pretty strange. But what is going on there? What's the background? Why would a person, if they wanted to be really dedicated to the Lord, stay away from grape juice or from fresh or dried grapes? What's the issue there? Well, the issue there was when someone wanted to take a Nazarite vow, they were so focused, so dedicated to the Lord, that what they wanted to do was stay away from anything, anything at all, that could potentially contaminate their mind, their focus, their dedication to the Lord. And so when someone took a Nazarite vow, he would stay away from certain of these things, and God blessed that. It would be today like someone who would say, I think I want to go on a fast. I want to completely focus in on my relationship to Jesus Christ, and so I'm going to stay away from food and drink altogether. Or someone who would just simply stay away from food, would drink a little bit, but would stay away from food because they wanted to focus in on their relationship to Christ. Be very similar. And I think that is what Paul is referring to here. He is saying, listen, there are going to be some people who come to you and they're going to say, you need Christ plus this kind of abstinence. Or you're going to need Christ plus the intake of a certain set of foods that's really going to make you dedicated to the Lord. We don't know exactly what the tradition or the folk belief, what folk belief was there in Colossae, but we do know this, there were false teachers here and they were advocating either staying away from certain foods or advocating certain foods because that was really going to make you spiritual. You add Christ with these things and you're really dedicated to Him. You're really open now, focused on the Lord. Now we know that that's not true. You don't have to have food or you don't have to stay away from certain foods in order to be totally dedicated to the Lord. He is talking about what we could call, as I said before, food legalism. The the abstinence of some foods or the adding of some foods. And he says in verse 17, these things are a mere shadow, but the substance belongs to Christ. He's saying food is a part of this age, but it's going to fade. It doesn't have anything to do with the age to come. It doesn't really have anything to do with the essence of your spirituality. Some of these folks were coming along and writing up their own standards, and then they were trying to hold everybody else to their standards. And that's why Jesus could have said in his context, and Paul does say here, judge not, lest ye be judged. Don't judge someone else by what they put in their mouth or by what they stay away from in their food consumption. Now that, my friends, is very practical for our day. We have people all over the place advocating certain foods or the staying away from certain foods, don't we? It's both inside and outside the church. It's both for health reasons and for religious reasons. You you scarce cannot go out of your own home or listen to the television or read a book or a magazine or listen to the radio without someone talking about food-related issues, can you? I mean, it is amazing to me, and frankly, I think much of it, if I were to give you my opinion, is a satanic diversion away from the essence of Christianity. 
It is a way for people to be diverted from thinking about the stuff that really matters and away from the things for which they need to be ultimately concerned. Food legalism. And I'll tell you, the Bible has much to say about it. Much to say. Jesus himself tackled this very issue about food and about someone taking it in or abstaining from it. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. Very, very critical words from the life of our Lord regarding these food items. You may not have realized it before, but food and the issue of food plays a very prominent role in the Bible. Very prominent role. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus says these words, especially regarding the tradition of the Pharisees and what they had begun to say was the essence of spirituality. Mark 7, 14. After he called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. Boy, what a truth. Jesus is saying universally, folks, universally, there is nothing for which a man can consume, put in his mouth, that will defile him, that will allow him to be unclean or non-spiritual or unfaithful. Nothing, he says. He says, but the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. What does he mean? Well, he says, verse 19, those things that are from outside cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart, but it goes into his stomach and is eliminated. He's saying, folks, food is biological. That's all. It's biological. It goes into his stomach and then it's eliminated. But that which is spiritual, that which is Christianity, is that which can go right to the heart. He says, at that very word, thus he declared all foods clean. And he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. And what is it? He says, for from within, out of the heart of men proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. And he ends by saying, all these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. You see what Jesus is doing there? He's going right to the heart of someone's spirituality. And he's saying, it's not that which he picks up and puts in his mouth that's the issue, it's that which is already in his heart. And that which is already in his heart is going to come out then in his actions, and then he gives you a list of those actions, and he says, that is that which defiles a man. Very, very instructive and wise words. Paul said the same thing, Romans 14, 17. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Beloved, don't let anyone tell you that food in and of itself can make or break your spirituality. It cannot. And even that which you concentrate on with regard to food will not make you more or less spiritual. Now, that isn't a very important word that we need to hear in the church because there are people in the church who are advocating all kinds of things. They're advocating the consumption of some kinds of foods 
for the betterment of their spiritual life, if not their physical life, and the staying away of some foods to enhance both as well. And since Jesus himself says all foods have been declared clean, we really ought to concentrate on our spiritual life, on our attitudes, on those things that may or may not defile us rather than what we put in our mouths. That's what he's saying. You remember Peter's vision in Acts 10? He was an Old Testament kind of guy. And when the sheet that was knit at the four corners was lowered down to him, and when it had all of these things on it for which he had stayed away from all of his life, he said, Lord, I, I can't eat that. That's unclean. I, I can't even touch that. And what did the Lord say? I have declared all these things clean, and that which I've declared clean, you may not declare unclean. Boy, what a statement. And so what did Peter do? He learned real fast. And remember the Jerusalem Council of Acts 15? They had to deal with this issue of food, didn't they? And what they dealt with was this. They said, as Peter did in Acts 10, all things are clean. Eat anything you want. Anything you want to eat is clean. It is not the essence of your spirituality. Paul even went further. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy 4. And this is this is really a passage of Scripture that I'd like to ask a number of people who seem to me to be centering in in a major way on the issue of food abstinence or food consumption. As though some things were good for you and some things were not good for you. 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Now, what do these hypocrites, what do these liars do? What are they telling you? What are they teaching? He says, men, verse 3, who forbid marriage, and notice this, and advocate ex ab abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. Now, that is a passage for which we must learn. All foods have been declared clean. God has created all things for us. Verse 4, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. You see, Paul is saying, listen, we cannot be bound by the yoke of food legalism anymore. It's not the essence of your spirituality. You can't abstain from something or consume something that will give you the essence of your spiritual life. And don't let anybody come to you and say, stay away from this or eat that, for in so doing you will enhance your relationship to Jesus Christ. That is not true. That is not true. Paul even says in Romans 14 to deal directly with this issue, a head-on statement. He says, now accept the one, Romans 14, 1, who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinion. You see, it's just an opinion. Those who say stay away from certain foods or consume certain foods, that's just their opinion. That's just their judgment. That's their belief. But he says, you should not pass judgment on his opinion. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but the one who is weak eats vegetables only, which is my life verse, by the way. 
The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? Paul is just saying, listen, there are going to be some Christians, there are going to be some believers who say, I eat this and I eat this for these reasons, and you must accept them. And there are going to be other Christians who say, I stay away from those things and I eat these things, or vice versa, and we're just to accept each other. Well, we're certainly not to go to other people, certainly not in the church of Jesus Christ, and say, listen, you ought to stay away from this food because it's not good for you. Or you ought to eat this kind of food because it is better for you. Because it's just your opinion. You say, but I have medical evidence. So do I. And so do a lot of other people who say what you say is not true. So who knows who is telling the truth? The New England Journal of Medicine comes out and says, this is bad for you. And five years later, the New England Journal of Medicine comes out with another article and says, no, this is very good for you. Who do we believe? No one. The issue is not food in your Christian life. It's all been created by God to be good. How do you break the bondage of legalism? Don't judge anyone else with regard to what they're eating. And don't allow anybody to judge you with regard to what you're eating. Now let's get real practical here. What about some other things? I mean, food is one thing, but what are some other kinds of legalism that we see in the church? Man-made rules that are set up and then people judge other Christians by them. Here's one. Exercise. Exercise. I know I'm stopped preaching and gone to meddling here, but <laughs> exercise. There are people who exercise a lot, and there are a lot of other people who don't exercise at all. Some people who exercise a lot, they look down on the people who don't exercise that much, and they say about those people, well, they're just lazy or sluggards, or they don't care about their body, and then they may even throw in a couple of good verses like, uh, the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, why aren't they doing everything they can to make sure that they're physically fit, and boy, they're just probably not that good a Christian at all. And then you have others who don't exercise that much, and they say, look at all of that wasted time these people are doing by exercising all this amount of time when they could be praying and reading their Bibles. What a shame. Amen. Or what about sports? Uh-oh. What about sports? There are people, I've even heard people say, I even discipled a man once who I had to spend two years of my life in a discipleship relationship with this man to try to get him out of what I could call non-sports legalism. And here's what was happening. He came to Christ, he went to a local church, and in that particular local church, he was told that sports are evil, that sports are inherently evil. Now imagine such a thought. And this man was really burdened in his Christian life. In fact, he always would say to me, you think it's okay if I watch a ball game tonight on the television? Or he'd say, you think God would accept me if I were to go to a baseball game at the stadium? And we'd talk about these things and we'd work our way systematically through all of these things. And he was really burdened. His conscience was so weighed down with the idea that he really liked sports. And the obvious fact was he wasn't doing any of it. And the very slightest hint that anything with regard to sports could be done, he just cowered because he thought, God is against me on this. And it was because in that particular church, they had what we could call the non-sports legalism. They said if you involve yourself in sports at all, then you're inherently doing something that God doesn't want you to do. 
It was a man-made rule. It was made up. There's nothing in the Bible about that. God has given us everything to enjoy, everything that is that is lawful. And there's nothing in the Word of God that says exercise or sports are unlawful. The issue is, according to Paul, everything is lawful for me, but not everything is profitable for me. Everything is lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. If sports controls me, then that is hurting or hindering my spirituality. But if sports for me is not that which hinders my spiritual life, it's okay. Same with regard to exercise. How about yard work? How about you working in your house, men? Some of you are mastered by that. Some of you, when you have the opportunity, would do only that, maybe even to the detriment of your relationship to Jesus Christ or your relationship to your family. You say, yes, but I get a lot of things done. Yes, you may have a honey-do list for which everything is checked off, but it may be detracting from your spiritual life, or it may not. It's open. It's a, a non-issue with regard to the essence of your salvation, and it is a non-issue if you're balanced and not mastered by it with regard to your sanctification. Boy, this is a really practical thing. How about cigarettes? Uh-oh. Cigarettes. If you see a person who professes that they know Jesus Christ and they're smoking a cigarette, what do you think? Now, I know that some of us think about that. Well, they must not really love Christ that much or they wouldn't be doing that to their body or they wouldn't want to be alienating someone else or they should think about secondhand smoke or all of the stuff that you hear today. Listen, folks, putting tobacco in your lips and lighting it on fire is not the essence of Christianity. It isn't. Smoking or not smoking doesn't make you a Christian or doesn't detract you from being a Christian. What about music? Same issue. What about movies? Same thing. If someone does it, and if they do it with regard to that which God does not explicitly prohibit, then they're free to do it. They're free to do it. If it masters them, if smoking masters you, if you are physically addicted to it, that's an entirely different issue. Because now you are mastered by something. I've said to you before that there are times in my own life where I will specifically give up my liberty to do something because there's no written statement in Scripture simply because I don't want to cause another brother or sister with a weaker conscience to stumble. But that doesn't make or break my sanctification in the ultimate sense. It's simply my opportunity to love. And I'll give it up as surely and as soon as I can if I believe that somebody else is stumbling by it. But by the same token, if somebody's doing it, and if they really honestly believe that others are not stumbling by it unless someone comes to them, then they have the freedom to do it. We should not look at them and look askance at all of their life and maybe even cast aspersions on their Christianity because of these things. We should not do that. There's a principle in 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4 that says this, that everything that pertains to life and godliness is contained in the principles and promises of Scripture. That's our roadmap. That's our guidebook. If it says that smoking or going to movies or playing sports or involved in exercise were wrong, then you could just go right to those people and say, brother or sister, it says in the Word of God here, I'm concerned for you. You need to stop doing these things. 
Or if it says in the Word of God that you must do these things, then you ought to go to that brother and sister and say, let me encourage you to do these things. It says that we must do them. Let's do them together. It doesn't make or break our spirituality. You say, well, what about food? What does the Bible say about food? Real quickly, it says two things. One, don't eat too much. That's gluttony, Proverbs 23. And two, what does it say about food? Do not force abstinence. 1 Timothy chapter 4. You can't force somebody to stay away from food as though that's the essence of what they need to be right with God or please God, or you should not eat too much so that you will hinder your own spiritual life and the testimony of others because you are gluttonous. Proverbs 23. You see, that's what was happening here, and that's what we need to stay away from. You cannot use food or drink to judge other people's relationship to their, to their God or in their sanctification, has utterly no relationship to his spirituality. Because if it did, God would give us instruction in his word regarding it. Now, that being the case, folks, I want you to be very careful. I want you to be very careful. Some of you may not make this a religious issue. Some of you may not intentionally do so, but watch out when you tell people not to eat red meat. Watch out if you tell people to be a vegetarian. Or watch out if you tell people to avoid sugar in their diet, to avoid salt in their diet, to not drink vitamin D milk but only 2% or nonfat. Watch out about herbs, teas, vitamins. Watch out for anybody who says do this or don't do that. Or anybody that says stay away from this but you must do that. Watch out for anyone who says it's fried foods or not fried foods. It's baked foods or not baked foods. Folks, it is everybody's opinion doesn't even matter if you have a mound of medical science evidence. The issue is you cannot attach someone's spirituality with such things, either their salvation or their sanctification. Now, he says also here in verse 16 that you cannot just judge others or be judged with food legalism or secondly, days or holidays of worship. Look at verse 16. We'll go through this real quickly. He says, Don't let anybody, anybody act as your judge with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. What does he mean? Well, you know at that time that the Jews, according to their dictates, according to Hosea 2, Ezekiel 45, 1 Chronicles 23, 2 Chronicles 2, they had all of those things. They had festivals. What were the festivals? The festivals were those times where they celebrated the Lord. Jewish holidays, we could call them, like the Passover, like Pentecost, like the Festival of Tabernacles or the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Lights. All of those were Jewish holidays that they celebrated the glory of God. What about new moons? What does that mean? Well, that just simply was a time when they sacrificed to the Lord on a first day of the month, which was for them a new moon. That's all that means. Numbers 28 talks about that. And then it says the Sabbath day. You're very familiar with that. That simply means the seventh day, the last day of the week. Sunday is not the last day of the week. Saturday is the last day of the week. Sunday is the first day of the week. We sort of, in our culture, have that reversed. We assume that, that Sunday is sort of our last day of this past week, and Monday is the first day of the next week, but that's not so. Sunday is the first day, Saturday is the Sabbath, and you know that Jews were told not to do any work, but to worship the Lord completely and fully on the Sabbath. And apparently there were some people here who were saying, listen, if you really want to be spiritual, if you really want to have 
Christ, you need Christ plus these festivals. You need Christ plus these new moons, these sacrificial lambs. You need Christ plus this Sabbath time. Paul says, no. The examples do not hold true. Why? He says, verse 17, the answer is, that's, that's shadowy stuff. The substance is Christ. The festivals, the new moons, the Sabbath days, all they were ever intended to do was point somebody to Jesus Christ. That's the shadow. The substance is Christ. And it's interesting, he uses the word for substance here, soma, which is the word body. He says this, there, there really can't be a shadow unless there is a body, right? You see a shadow that comes around the corner, you know that a body is there. And when that body is there, the, sh the shadow no longer exists. That's his point. Christ is the substance. The body of Christ, the substance of Christ has come. Christ is here among us. And you don't need the shadows anymore. He says you don't need to worship on those festival days anymore because Christ, the reality of the festivals, is here. You don't need a new moon sacrificial system because Christ, the ultimate one who was sacrificed, He's here. And even disagreeing with many Christians these days, you don't need to observe the Sabbath because our Sabbath rest, according to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 3, is here, and that is our salvation. Christ is the ultimate rest. And when you believe in Christ, that Sabbath has been gained for you and me. There are even a group of people who profess Christ that say, in order for you to be a Christian, you have to worship God on Saturday. Who are they called? Seventh-day Adventists. Now, maybe not all of them do that, but many of them, if not most of them, believe that in order for you to actually be a Christian, you have to worship God on Saturday. And if you don't worship God on Saturday, you're not a Christian. Folks, that is legalism. That is legalism, pure and simple. That is a man-made rule, because even the Sabbath in the Old Covenant was never designed to prove who was and who wasn't a Christian who was or who wasn't a believer in that terminology. It was always to point forward to the person of Christ, always. And it was uh, an evidence, a sign, that I, as a believer, wanted to follow God fully. I wanted to do what He wants me to do on a particular day, but now Christ is here, breaking the bondage of legalism. Let me ask you in closing. Do you judge others by what you do or don't eat? critical question. Do you judge others by what they drink or don't drink? Do you judge others by when they worship? You see, it's not a problem. I have a Seventh-day Adventist aunt, and the issue for me is not when I worship. I could worship on a Saturday. We could change our service times and begin worshiping on Saturday. It's just a day. That's what Paul says in Romans 14, after food and drink. He says, one, day one man worships God on one day, another man worships God on another day. The issue isn't the day, the issue is worship. Do we hold people in contempt? Do we judge them unnecessarily by what we eat, by what we drink, by what we stay away from, by when we worship? When you are judged by others, do you seek to point them back to the sufficiency of Jesus Christ like Paul is doing here? Christ alone. When non-Christians around you focus in on the do's and don'ts, the rules and regulations of Christianity, do you continually focus them back on the person of Christ as the real issue?
someone came to me and said, well, I saw uh, so-and-so going to a movie the other night, or I saw so-and-so uh, smoking a cigarette, or I saw so-and-so dancing, and they go to your church, don't they? How can they be a Christian and do those things? The issue is, it is not what is outside the man that defiles the man. It is what is inside the man. That's always the issue, and it will always be the issue. Beloved, let's work as a church, as a congregation of people, not to judge others and to resist the judgment of others with regard to these very, very legalistic tendencies. It will help, it will enhance, it will benefit our spiritual lives to no end. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we are instructed once again by your word. You help us break the back of legalism by telling us once again that it is not what is outside a man. It's not the day of week that he worships. It's not the food or drink that he consumes or stays away from. It's Christ. It's always Christ. It's always the issue. We thank you for Christ. We thank you that he's given us his word so that we might respond rightly. Lord, we have enough trouble responding to the things that are already written that we must do and stay away from and inventing man-made ritual and regulations to try to follow that as well. We thank you that you've given us your word so that we can respond rightly to it. May we do and think only those things which are consistent with your truth and not judge others not to judge them with regard to what they're doing or not doing if it is not explicitly stated in your truth. Thank you for helping and instructing us with this very practical word. May we continue to study these things in the days ahead so that we might give you great glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.